there, and welcome to this week's episode of Down to Sleep, the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Tonight we return to the legend of Sleepy Hollow for the second time. There are new episodes of this podcast every Monday. If you would like to get even more readings, then join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash down to sleep, where you can support the podcast with a few dollars a month and get a bonus episode every single week. The episodes are longer, and there is currently about 76 of them, so come and join us there for bonus readings and getting to vote on what I read next. Now, let's tuck you in and get back into the legend of Sleepy Hollow. From the moment that Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end. His only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tassel. In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties, fell to the lot of a knight-errant of yore, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such-like easily conquered adversaries to contend with, and had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass, walls of adamant to the castle keep, where the lady of his heart was confined all which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the centre of a Christmas pie, and then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. Ichabod, on the contrary, had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette, beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments, and he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood, the numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart, keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Among these, the most formidable was a burly, roaring, roistering blade of the name of Abraham, or according to the Dutch abbreviation, Brom van Brunt, the hero of the country round, which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, with short, curly black hair, and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb, he had received the nickname of Brombones, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a Tartar. He was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with the ascendancy which bodily strength always acquires in rustic life, was the umpire in all disputes, setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone that admitted of no gainsay or appeal. He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischief than ill-will in his composition, and with all his overbearing roughness there was a strong dash of waggish good humour at bottom. He had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model, and at the head of whom he scoured the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles around. In cold weather he was distinguished by a fur cap, surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail, and when the folks at a country gathering descried this well-known crest at a distance, 
whisking about among a squad of hard riders. They always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with whoop and halloo, like a troop of Don Cossacks, and the old dames startled out of their sleep would listen for a moment, till the hurry-scurry had clattered by, and then exclaim, Hey, there goes Brom Bones and his gang. The neighbours looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill, and when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted that Brom Bones was at the bottom of it. This rantipole hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries, and though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, yet it whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his amours, insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's paling on a Sunday night, a sure sign that his master was courting, or as it is termed, sparking, within all other suitors passed by in despair, and carried the war into other quarters. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend, and considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition, a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature, he was, in form and spirit, like a supplejack, yielding but tough, though he bent but never broke, and though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment it was away, jerk, he was as erect and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours. Any more than that stormy lover, Achilles. Ichabod therefore made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under the cover of his character of singing master, he made frequent visits at the farmhouse. Not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling block in the path of lovers. Bolt Van Tassel was an easy, indulgent soul. He loved his daughter better even than his pipe, and like a reasonable man and an excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry, for as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after, but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house or plied her spinning wheel, Honest Bolt would sit smoking his evening pipe at the other, watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior who, armed with a sword in each hand, were most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit with the daughter, by the side of the spring under the great elm, or sauntering along in the twilight that hour so favourable to the lover's eloquence. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won. To me they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. 
Some seem to have but one vulnerable point or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues, and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter, for man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown, but he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is that this was not the case with the redoubtable Brom Bones, and from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied to the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brom, who had a degree of rough chivalry in his nature, would fain have carried matters to open warfare and settled their pretensions to the lady. According to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners, the knights errant of yore by single combat, but Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse, and he was too wary to give him an opportunity. There was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brom no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic waggery in his disposition, to play off-boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night, in spite of its formidable fastenings of wythe and window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But what was still more annoying, Brom took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress, and had a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner, and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct her in psalmody. In this way matters went on for some time without producing any material effect on the relative situations of the contending powers. On a fine autumnal afternoon, Ichabod in pensive mood sat enthroned on the lofty stool from whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand he swayed a ferule, that scepter of despotic power, the birch of justice, repost on three nails behind the throne, a constant terror to evildoers, while on the desk before him might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons, detected upon persons of idle urchins, half-munched apples, pop-guns, whirligigs, fly-cages, and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks. Apparently there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master, and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a man in tow-cloth jacket and trousers, a round-crowned fragment of a hat like the cap of mercury, 
mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, half-broken colt, which he managed with a rope by way of halter. He came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merrymaking or quilting frolic to be held that evening at Van Tassel's. Having delivered his message with that air of importance and effort at fine language, he dashed over the brook and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of his mission. All was now bustle and hubbub in the late quiet schoolroom. The scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity, and those who were tardy had a smart application now and then in the rear to quicken their speed, or help them over a tall word. Books were flung aside without being put away on shelves, inkstands were overturned, benches were thrown down, and the whole school was turned loose an hour before usual time, bursting forth like a legion of young imps, yelping, racketing about the green and joy at their early emancipation. The gallant Ichabod now spent at least an extra half-hour at his toilet, brushing, furbishing up his best, and indeed only suit of rusty black, arranging his locks by a bit of broken-looking glass that hung up in the schoolhouse, that he might make his appearance before his mistress in the true style of a cavalier, he borrowed a horse from the farmer, a choleric old Dutchman of the name of Hans van Ripper, and thus gallantly mounted, issued forth like a knight-errant in quest of adventure. But it is meet I should, in the true spirit of a romantic story, give some account of the looks and equipment of my hero and steed. The animal that he bestrode was a broken-down plough-horse that had outlived almost everything but its viciousness. He was gaunt and shagged, with a ewe-neck and head like a hammer. His rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs. One eye had lost its pupil and was glaring and spectral. The other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it. Still, he must have had fire and metal in his day if we may judge from the name he bore of gunpowder. He had, in fact, been a favourite steed of his master's, the choleric Van Ripper, who was a furious rider, and had infused very probably some of his own spirit into the animal. For old and broken down as he looked, there was more of the lurking devil in him than in any young filly in the country. Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. He rode with short stirrups which brought his knees nearly up to the pommel of the saddle, his sharp elbows stuck out like grasshoppers. He carried his whip perpendicularly in his hand, like a scepter, and as his horse jogged on the motion of his arms was not unlike the flapping of a pair of wings. A small wool hat rested on top of his nose, for so his scanty strip of forehead might be called, and the skirts of his black coat fluttered out almost to the horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod and his steed as they shambled out of the gate of Hans van Ripper, and it was altogether such an apparition as is seldom to be met with in broad daylight. It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery which we always associate with the idea of abundance. The forests had put on their sober brown and yellow, while some trees of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frosts into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming files of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. 
the bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts, the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble field. The small birds were taking their farewell banquets. In the fullness of their revelry they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush, tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen with its loud querulous note, and the twittering blackbirds flying in sable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker with his crimson crest and splendid plumage, the cedar-bird with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail, its little cap of feathers, and the blue jay in his gay light blue coat and white underclothes, screaming, chattering, nodding and bobbing and bowing and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove. As Ichabod jogged slowly on his way, his eye ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance ranged with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. On all sides he beheld vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider press. Farther on he beheld great fields of Indian corn, with its golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts, holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding, and the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them, turning up their fair round bellies to the sun, and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies, and anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, breathing the odour of the beehive, and as he beheld them soft anticipations stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks and well-buttered and garnished with honey or treacle, by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina Van Tassel, thus feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts and sugared suppositions, he journeyed along the side of a range of hills which look out upon some of the goodliest scenes of the mighty Hudson. The sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down in the west. The wide bosom of the Tapan Sea lay motionless and glassy, excepting that here and there a gentle undulation waved and prolonged in the blue shadow of the distant mountain. A few amber clouds floated in the sky, without a breath of air to move them. The horizon was a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green, and from that into the deep blue of the mid-heaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woody crests of the precipices that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark grey and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance dropping slowly down with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast, and as the reflection of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in the air. It was toward evening that Ichabod arrived at the castle of Heer Van Tassel, which he found thronged with pride and flower of the adjacent country. Old farmers, a spare leathern-faced race in homespun coats and breeches, blue stockings and huge shoes, 
magnificent pewter buckles. Their brisk, withered little dames, in close crimped caps and long-waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats with scissors and pincushions, and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside, buxom lasses, almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting where a straw hat, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock, gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons, in short, square-skirted coats, with rows of stupendous brass buttons, and their hair generally cued in the fashion of the times, especially if they could procure an eel-skin for the purpose, it being esteemed throughout the country as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair. Brom Bones, however, was the hero of the scene, having come to the gathering on his favourite steed, Daredevil, a creature like himself full of metal and mischief, and which no one but himself could manage. He was, in fact, noted for preferring vicious animals, given to all kinds of tricks which he kept the rider in a constant risk of his neck, for he held a tractable, well-broken horse as unworthy of a lad of spirit. Fain would I pause to dwell upon the world of charms that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero as he entered the state parlour of Van Tassel's mansion. Not those of the bevy of buxom lasses with their luxurious display of red and white, but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea table in the sumptuous time of autumn. Such heaped-up platters of cakes of various and almost indescribable kinds, known only to experienced Dutch housewives. There was a doughty doughnut, the tender ollie coke, the crisp and crumbling cruller, sweet cakes and short cakes and ginger cakes and honey cakes and the whole family of cakes. Then there were apple pies and peach pies and pumpkin pies, besides slices of ham and smoked beef and moreover delectable dishes of preserved plums and peaches and pears and quinces, not to mention broiled shad and roasted chickens together with bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgledy-piggledy pretty much with the motherly teapot sending up its clouds of vapour from the midst. Heaven bless the mark. I want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves, but I am too eager to get on with my story. Happily, Ichabod Crane was not in so great a hurry as his historian, but did ample justice to every dainty. He was a kind and thankful creature, whose heart dilated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer, and whose spirits rose with eating, as some men's do with drink. He could not help, too, rolling his large eyes around him as he ate, chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendour. Then, he thought, how soon he'd turn his back upon the old schoolhouse, snap his fingers in the face of Hans Van Ripper, and every other patron, and kick any iterant pedagogue out the door that should dare to call him comrade. Old Baltus Van Tassel moved about among his guests with a face dilated with content and good humour, round and jolly as the harvest moon. His hospitable attentions were brief but expressive, being confined to the shake of a hand, a slap on the shoulder, a loud laugh, and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves. And now the sound of the music from the common room, or hall, summoned to the dance. The musician was an old grey-headed man, 
His instrument was as old and battered as himself. The greater part of the time he scraped on two or three strings, accompanying every movement of the bow with a motion of his head, bowing almost to the ground and stamping with his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start. Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb, not a fibre about him was idle, and to have seen his loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room, you would have thought that St. Vetus himself, that blessed patron of the dance, was figuring before you in person. The lady of his heart was his partner in the dance and smiling graciously in reply to all of his amorous oglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in one corner. And that is where we close the book on this week's episode of Down to Sleep. I hope that this helped you relax, and you were already asleep or on your way there. If you're not, then pull up another episode, or maybe even restart this one, and have it be twice as boring the second go-around to help you drift off. You can also join us on the Patreon if you want to access even more episodes at patreon.com slash downtosleep, or head to our website to find everywhere that you can listen to this podcast, including YouTube at downtosleeppodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Until next time, good night.